whether or not you have experience in climate, that's not the point. The point is, can you bring something that can bring a different layer to it? Welcome to another episode of the Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan's Feet. And I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from thought leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. On the show today is Laura Zapata, CEO and co-founder of Clearloop. Clearloop, or Clearloop US on most social medias, is for brands that want to reclaim their carbon footprint and expand access to clean energy by building new solar projects in the US. Laura Zapata is the CEO and co-founder of Clearloop Corporation a Nashville-based startup that helps companies of all sizes, from established companies like Intuit and Vista Equity Partners, to direct consumer brands like Drops, cut their carbon footprint and expand access to clean energy in the United States. Laura made a career in crisis communications and reputation management, having worked in Congress, political campaigns, and Uber. She's now helping companies reach their ESG goals with tangible climate action and ensure that the environmental, health, and economic benefits of new solar projects reach communities getting left behind. Laura is a strong believer that solar can do more if we're intentional about the communities where we invest and is eager to work with more companies seeking to tackle their carbon footprint. Laura immigrated from Columbia, was raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and is a graduate of Dartmouth College. We cover carbon accounting, ESG strategies, her transition from politics to climate tech, as we just discussed, and the two questions she asked her team as they were getting started and learning how to best support corporate climate goals. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I am ridiculously excited, uh, as per usual, but in particularly so for Clearly, there's so much to talk about, and it builds on other pieces of the season that we've had, including um, Gavin McCormick at Watt Time, who I'm sure will come up. But I think a fun place to start is with Cask and Gauntlet. Um, is it CNG? I don't know if it's abbreviated. <laughs> yeah. But I think, it, as I understand it, it's from the internet, so I could be wrong. It is a senior society at Dartmouth, which you are a member of, and has a including includes a few famous alumni are are, are, are there alumni of senior societies or members um, who've impacted society in a great way including dr seuss theater seuss geisel although obviously his um his person his persona his public persona has changed in the past recent years but still hugely impactful at least for my childhood tell me a little bit about how it's impacted you how it affects your transition out of school into your first career and for people who aren't familiar uh, familiar with the concept maybe explaining a bit about it too yeah that's so funny you're the first person to ask me that question so you have definitely dug in um, to to all the things um, that I've done and I had even I had even forgotten about it but I think what's what's really um, interesting is so I grew up in Memphis Tennessee as a, as a first generation immigrant and going to Dartmouth was a very interesting and sort of uh, culture shocking uh, experience not only because it was very cold um, but because there's lots of um, you know it it snowed in April, um, which was jarring from somebody growing up in the South. But what what's interesting about it um, was that there are all these different constructs of um, sort of societies and, and these senior societies and these legacy things that are really important pieces of um, those organizations, or those you know Ivy Leagues that have been around for generations and generations that you know my family had not had a, a chance to be part of. And so it was really interesting to be part of a sort of construct or, 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 you know, the senior society at a university that 
had this long legacy, you know, much longer than my family has had even been in the United States. And so um, I think for me, it was important to sort of um, be the first one to break open some of those um, organizations and just be part of it and see what it was, what it was like and what I can contribute to it. Um, and so that was part of the thinking when, when I was in college many, many moons ago. Um, and so that was that was what led me to then think about, you know, politics and, um, you know, my career really uh, got started uh, in, in Washington, D.C. and sort of thinking about communications. But I had not had access to that kind of organization or organizational structure that has this long lasting legacy until I went to a place like Dartmouth that has, you know, generations of, of legacies and and part of it was very cool. And to be the first but not the last, um, it was also very important for me as, as I took on my career and uh, what I do today. Yeah. And part of the reason I bring it up is because I think one could argue that policy and politics itself is this large secret society uh, that requires membership access into truly driving an impact. And so two things. One, are there any frameworks you learned from, I don't know, how did you get into the society and then how did you get into politics and or are the two related at all? And then can you, how do, are there any lessons to share for people who are maybe looking on the, at least they believe they're looking at the outside in and then how do they get on the inside? And then especially in the climate world, I, you know, there are many people who talk about trying to get a climate job, but they don't necessarily have climate experiences. And so I think that same framework can apply here. Yeah, so I don't know that it played such a large part in in my life that the senior society necessarily. I think it was it was more of a function of I was really involved in all things that had to do with um, sort of different leadership positions at college because it was really important for me to really take advantage of that opportunity. My family had not been in this country for you know uh, very long, and to have you know sort of been. Um, at least had the little bit of a window open, you know, I was definitely going to try to put my toe in there and, and, and learn more and, and get in there. And so I think that a similar thing applies to um, sort of in that thinking applies to climate. I did not come from the climate world either. My career had spanned really communication sort of in politics and in government um, and in corporate, in the corporate world. And for me, it was always coming back to first principles of what I cared um, about my community and what I wanted to represent about my community, both you know being a, a Latina, but also an immigrant in the South and gr having grown up in the South was really important to, to who I am and what I what experiences I can bring to the world and what what perspectives and sort of understanding that oftentimes my lived experiences lent a different lens um, or a different perspective or some other point of view that was important to bring to the table um, and I think that that you know feeling like that like owning that it was important for me to have my point of view reflected in a particular organization or in a solution that I wanted to bring to the table has been something that has carried me on. And I think in, in sustainability or in climate, it's something that is it's important. We're, we need all perspectives. This is this is going to take all hands on deck for us to figure out what to do. And so the more innovative and creative and the more ideas we bring to the table, I think um, the better served we will be. So whether 
or not you have experience in climate doesn't really, uh, that, that's not the point. The point is, can you bring something that is, um, that can bring a different layer to it? Because um, so far, uh, you know, what, what we've done with the climate has not been, you know, has not gone terrifically well. We, we still need more solutions. So um, why not try new things or why not bring your perspective that's much more valuable than uh, years and years in, in the space? Of course, we always want to learn from the folks who've been in this space for a long time, the researchers and the scientists, and take their data. But uh, new perspectives or new ways of, of trying or to look at the problem, I think, is, is really invaluable. And you shadowed a number of pieces we'll get into later in the show, which are both first principles because you yourself, as you called out, made this transition from communications and politics and tech world into renewable energy. And you had to learn the first principles of renewable energy, emissionality, all those things I want to cover, as well as markets and the purpose of market failures and figuring out new perspectives to come figure out to determine how can we make an impact where both markets and policies aren't doing the things we need. We'll get to both of those. Before we do that, let's go back a little bit through your career arc. You finished Dartmouth, you go to DC, you get into politics. If there's any specific stories and impacts you had there and from a climate perspective, we're very interested in hearing that. But if not, we can jump straight to how you go politics, tech, back to politics, and then boom, CEO, co-founder of Renewable Energy Company. How does that happen? Yeah, uh, it's always interesting to me because I feel like I, I have this, I have to like find the neat thread that brings it all together. But sometimes life is, you know, just a bunch of different risks that you take and uh, obviously very, you know, somewhat calculated risks, but um, just different experiences and trying things on has been really important to me. I think less about um, the theme of climate. It's been much more about the theme of big problems and, and communicating those big problems into really um, sort of um, digestible pieces for me has always been very interesting. Like, how do you communicate this big, broad idea into some pieces that just feel common sense and just feel like, okay, you don't have, there's lots of nuance, but how can you bring more people to the table to hear what it is, to hear the message and what it is that you're trying to convince them um, of, of doing? So whether that was in government, um, I was really interested in government mostly because of my own experiences with with immigration i just thought that that was such a neat interesting thing but i found the world the world of communications much more um you know i wanted to know a little bit about a lot of things and then try to distill it down to pieces and i think climate is one of those things you know it affects all of us and then how do you how do you bring it down to just pieces of it, because I think, you know, science is so intimidating, climate change and the, you know, enormity of it is so intimidating. So how can we bring more people along, especially in some of the communities where climate may not be front and center to, you know, your livelihood, but it is something that's sort of uh, constantly there. And so how can we make it a lot more meaningful to people to do something about it um, and to want to get excited about, you know, buying into this idea that we can, that there are practical solutions, we can do things to solve the climate crisis. And it, it's sometimes not super sexy, um, but sometimes it's really practical and common sense. And so how do we bring those ideas and those things together and that message uh, to distill it down to its pieces and, and get more people to come along? Right. And also, how do we, I think, add on to that, it's how do we take climate from this liberal East Coast elite 
mentality and bring it to people who are impacted, who are, their communities are funded by coal plants or, or other forms of fossil fuel energy, right? And get everyone all hands on deck. So with that, um, distilling, bite, distilling science and turning into bite-sized uh, pieces of communication, communicating, how did you go from expert in policy and, commu- and communications to understanding emissionality, RECs versus offsets, PPAs, and um, a lot of people may not be familiar with those terms. And so what resources did you use to learn those, get up to speed, build the deep understanding? Was it books, people, podcasts, whomever? People are you know, very interested in trying to figure out, trying to duplicate the path you took and want to understand how you figured it out. Yeah. So the good news about the climate space is that there's lots and lots of people who have done great research and they're very willing to share. And the space is, is still fairly new and, and uh, flexible that everybody's sort of learning um, alongside each other. And so when we launched uh, and, and started thinking about Clearloop a little bit over three and a half years ago, we had the luxury one of having um, some funding to go research and figure it out, right? Like just go ask questions and find out who to ask questions to. Uh, Google is great, but there's lots of people out there that, that you know, were willing to give us their time and energy to, to tell us a little bit more about how it all works. We started um, with a few different things. The first question for us was, what is a carbon footprint and how do you measure it? You know, how, if, if companies are saying that they're offsetting their carbon footprint, like what, what does that mean? How are they getting to that number? Before we even get into the solution space, it's just how do you even know uh, what it is? And so we um, had really great uh, folks at Vanderbilt, uh, this professor Vanderberg at, at Vanderbilt, he's in the law school who had written a book about um, private governance. And it was all about um, how companies companies had, um, we had this opportunity to sort of dive in with companies that were starting to think about their carbon footprint and uh, they could take um, some of the mantle of what the government had, had so far failed to do with um, carbon pricing and, and sort of acting um, on behalf um, of our, you know, society uh, in addressing climate change. And so it was interesting because I remember very vividly when he sat us down, me and and my co-founder, Bob, and said, "Um, okay, so do you guys know what scope one, two, and three is? And we were just, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And uh, he then went into telling us, you know, this is is how, um, you know, we've all agreed sort of based on the greenhouse gas protocol. And so got to learn about that and and how you measure um, your carbon footprint as a, as a company. And we learned then, uh, you know, early 2019, that most companies were still trying to figure out how to do scope one, which was their internal stuff, uh, scope two, their electricity, they had a bill associated with it. But really the meaty part was scope three and scope three in some instances is 75% of a company's entire carbon footprint. That's your value chain, everything from your employees coming in and out of work to um, when you make raw materials and, and or, or you buy raw materials to make a product. And that was the meaty part that that, uh, you know, had not been paid attention to for a while, that companies were eventually going to have to figure out how to, what to do about it. And um, 
it was not super obvious. And so that's where we really decided to dig in. But it was all about first, how do you measure a carbon footprint? Second, what kind of things are companies doing about it? And then three, you know, if we are if we are really interested in cleaning up the grid, we saw the grid as the biggest opportunity we had is how is the grid being decarbonized today? And what else can we bring to the table? How do we bring more companies to help us do that? And then two, what kind of mechanisms can we use to bring those companies to the table? So we learned about uh, power purchase agreements. And uh, so it was a lot of the first six to nine months, a lot of learning from people um, as we post these questions and, you know, dug into some rabbit holes, but people were very kind with their time and letting us just, you know, take 30 minutes to uh, learn about all of the different concepts as we started putting these, these uh, questions into answers into our solution together. Just for context, for people who aren't familiar, this is 2019 timeframe, correct? That's and right. Who, and who's the we that you're referring to? Yeah, so Clearloop, it was three of us that co-founded um, Clearloop. So it is um, uh, former governor, uh, Phil Bredesen, the governor of the state of Tennessee. Um, he was our co-founder and funder. He was our seed uh, um, angel investor for the first six months where he was basically saying, you know, could we turn this idea into, and the idea was, can we get more companies to help us clean up the grid? Can we take their carbon footprint and turn it into brand new renewables? Um, it was a little bit different than that, but but essentially those were the big pieces. And then my other, the day-to-day co-founder was Bob Corney. Um, so the three of us had met on the governor's um, Senate campaign in 2018. He was running for US Senate. He had been the governor of Tennessee, had been very successful as a Democrat in Tennessee. And uh, we met during the campaign, enjoyed working with each other. And uh, after we did not uh, successfully uh, win that seat, we decided let's go into business together and try to figure out if government's not going to act on this very important problem. How do we get um, more of the private sector involved into helping us um, clean up the grid and, and fight back against climate change? For people who aren't familiar with, including myself, uh, Tennessee's politics, what is it? Is it a blue state? Is it a red state? Is it none of the above? How are you pushing the climate change agenda? I guess presumptuously, I'm going to assume that it leans more to the red. Um, so two things, mm-hmm. you know, how are you crossing? And um, if I'm not mistaken, the governor ran on a Democratic ticket. That's and right. so, um, you know, what was that journey like trying to cross the line per se? And is there any advice you have for uh, distilling climate in a partisan world to people ac- both across both parties and party agnostic? Um, how can we shape this message of climate affects you and solving the climate crisis is going to help you regardless of uh, who you want to vote for? Yeah. So I think that for us, it was really important to sort of take a step back and try to figure out, okay, this is an issue also of investment in the middle part of the country. And so if we could communicate this as an economic development issue, you know, using solar as an economic development tool, because it's real infrastructure that's going into a community, it's oftentimes the first piece of infrastructure to have gone into a community in many, many generations. And it's clean infrastructure. It's not, you know, the, the, um, the false choice that a lot of communities often have, especially, uh, you know, 
more economically distressed communities in the middle part of the country, oftentimes the, the false choices between their health and investment. And so I think that for us, it was really important to sort of see this as an opportunity to reframe the, the question and to, and to really answer how do we get more money invested in our communities in a way that's a win-win um, for both the community as a new investment opportunity, as a new um, way to uh, bring infrastructure dollars, but two, how do we use this desire and this demand, this growing demand from companies to hit their um, climate goals and use this as an opportunity for them to, to funnel those climate uh, dollars into meaningful, you know, sustainable projects that are then it's not just affecting the environmental part of their ESG, but it's really also then looking into the, the, the social aspect of how you get connected to a community, build a project, but then have a longer link to the, to the community that lives in that particular community. Yeah, we're going to jump around. This is a question that I want to ask. And for listeners who are not familiar with the ins and outs of, um, of renewable energy projects, I promise we're going to come back and talk about emissionality, renewable energy credits, power purchase agreements, virtual power purchase agreements, offsets, scope one, two, and three. But we're talking about the co-benefits. Uh, one of the pieces that Clearloop does that's super interesting is renewable energy is typically talked about in the scope two realm particularly as an inset. And you you mentioned scope three and the value chain. And part of the scope three, although not necessarily in the greenhouse gas protocol, is this idea of co-benefits. And so when Clearloop is looking at developing a project in a community who might not otherwise have access to clean energy, how do they source it in term, and how do they think about the co-benefits and what does it mean for these communities who otherwise wouldn't have access to clean infrastructure and clean energy and all the other benefits? What are the other benefits that come with developing a project in that neighborhood? Yeah, so when we started looking at the world and, you know, one of the questions we answered was, okay, how do you measure carbon footprint? But the, the other one is like, how is renewable energy development happening in the United States today, right? There's there's lots of wonderful headlines, especially in 2019. Um, and, and as we were developing this, you know, year over year, record-breaking renewable energy was happening, right? And so, but then when you start distilling that is when you start from very little, it is true and it is admirable what the United States has done so far in in, in, in the world has done in showing demand for renewable energy. Um, but when we started digging a little bit deeper, you start seeing that that demand and the places where it, that investment is happening is really the coasts um, or you know places where there were lots of other incentives. And so you start very quickly seeing the story, you know, a typical story, unfortunately, in the United States where the middle part of the country is not seeing that sort of investment either. And so for us, it was really important to say, okay, so when you start taking one, this, and I know I'm, I'm jumping around quite a bit for, for our listeners, hopefully this will all start coming together. But um, when you start looking at one, the, this idea of emissionality, where can you have the biggest bang for your buck when you invest in, in a brand new renewable energy source, when you build new capacity, where can you get the most carbon out of the atmosphere or, or avoid the most out of the um, of the grid? Where can you clean up the most? Um, you start seeing this map of emissionality in the middle part of the country where it's still fairly fossil fuel um, reliant um, starts coming um, to the surface. And then when you start overlaying, and so this is all data driven, this is not just, you know, sort of, uh, you know, some, some uh, kind of 
theories that we've put together. This is sort of taking the data of the, what we know about the emissions um, of our grid today, and then overlaying that with um, the distressed community index or, or any sort of you know different ways of looking at, at the country and the different um, sort of socioeconomic factors. And you start very quickly seeing this picture of the middle part of the country, again, um, uh, being highlighted. And so for us, it's really important to then use that data to drive decisions before we even think about where to build. Those are the two things that we're really looking at beforehand. And then creating a relationship with the community is paramount. And so reaching out to, to a community before we even have um, an idea of where to place a solar project, how um, how the, the utility works, it's really working with the usually the economic development team in a, in a community that's trying to bring um, new industry to the area, because those folks already know where the land is, what kind of stuff is going on in their community, and and you know having a, a real conversation before even a project is thought about helps um, ensure that that project feels and looks a lot more like what the community wants and needs, as opposed to you know us interposing ourselves on top of, of what we think a community needs. Um, so so all of those factors are really important, sort of um, as the before part of of how clearly builds our projects. We'll be right back to Laura and her experience working in the world of RECs, PPAs, project finance, and additionality after a quick message from Climate People. Season three of the Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. You know, you mentioned you were focusing on the grid, and the grid is a great example uh, using the greenhouse gas framework of how people can inset as opposed to offset. Um, the reason Scope 2 exists, as for those who don't know, as its own category, even though it's considered an indirect emissions, is because there's a clear opportunity to, to have zero emissions, right? For Scope 4, uh, for scope for Category 3 and Scope 4, upstream and downstream emissions, there's not exactly a way to move goods across the country with zero energy, uh, with zero carbon. Um, you know, hydrogen and hopefully lithium will help us get there, but today it's not necessarily the case. Clean energy, on the other hand, absolutely, we have a pathway to zero, zero carbon. And so you chose to focus on this, and then emissionality adds a new lens, right? Because as uh, Clearloop has stated, and as you've shared, and people can go look up on it, we'll put it in the show notes on some of the blogs, most of the renewable energy projects are developed where people have muscle memory, where they already have the existing contacts, where they already have the relationships with the utilities or, or the politics. But then there's a market failure. There's not an opportunity to do it in communities that need new uh, that need new energy. And there's the lens of emissionality. So all that to say is why is there this market fa- failure? How is Clearloop fixing it? Specifically, where are these communities? And what does like what does success look like in terms of Clearloop's impact on a net zero transition and renewable energy across the board? 
Yeah. So I think that I, I'm not sure if it's yet a market failure. My hope is that it's not. I think it's too early. The market's still being defined. And so, you know, as of 10 years ago, we didn't have renewable energy in the way that we have it today, right? Most renewable energy companies and, and PPAs even, you know, have only existed for the past sort of this idea that you have a contract um, for for to show demand into procure renewable energy is fairly new concept in the like broader energy industry, right? This is only as of the past decade. So I think that that was just the beginning. I think that we need to remind ourselves, everybody in the sustainability climate world is that it's still early and we should have more vehicles. We should have more um, market um, solutions so that, because this is a meaty problem and we're not going to fix it by doing the same thing over and over again, right? We've learned from a way we've shown demand for renewable energy on the on the power purchase side. Um, and the biggest opportunity for us is in scope three. And, um, and so how do we marry those two things? How do we bring another vehicle to bear? And so for us, it's really this ability to say, okay, if if power purchase agreements only work for you know a hundred or so companies, because I think something like only you know less than two hundred companies have signed PPAs, and it's great. It's shown demand um, for companies that have data centers or are very sophisticated have they have the ability to do these power purchase agreements. But what about the rest of the economy? What about the rest of the companies that are mid to to big size companies that? Um, have either already maxed out and they they know they have renewable energy, they've been able to procure it for, for the big companies um, or for the small ones that are thinking or the ones that just don't want to put their credit rating um, at risk in that way. And so what happens to those companies? What other opportunities do they have to put capital to work to build new renewable energy capacity? There's not a lot of stuff out there. Um, they can buy unbundled credits for renewable energy um, credits and match their scope too. But what happens to their big chunk, right? They have this big chunk of scope three. What what other solutions do they have to hit that? And so that's where we're coming together. It's basically this idea that you can get more parts of the economy, more companies that don't have, they're not bankable or don't want to sign a PPA for whatever reason. And then this other idea that they also have this other bigger part of their carbon footprint that they're trying to affect and they can't do it directly or they, you know, there's there's not the technology to do it, but they can do something about it. They have a budget. And so in their scope three, how do we bring renewable energy as a way to offset the rest of their carbon footprint? Um, so that's what we've done. We've translated, you know, here's your kind of carbon that you're trying to avoid. And you can translate that to the number of watts that we're building in solar uh, in a particular place in the country. It you know goes up and down depending on how carbon intense the grid is. But it's just a new way of thinking about how to interconnect your projects because it's no longer just about purchasing power. It really is about how do we avoid, how do we clean up the grid? Like that is the goal of it is reduce greenhouse gases because the cheapest carbon we can pay for is the one we don't create. So let's stop burning fossil fuels um, so that we can clean up the grid and place where we need to, to really beat back climate change. Let's walk back a little bit for people who are a little unfamiliar with renewable energy credits, offsets, power purchase agreements. And, and a, a great way to do this would be talking about some of your projects that you've already worked, that you've already developed, including with um, private equity firms who people may or may not know, but Vista Equity Partners, maybe more popular Rivian, the electrical, the electric vehicle manufacturer, also Impact Snacks, who was an early episode, an early interview of the Net Zero Life episode seven, for those who want to go listen into it, 
other um, other companies as well. What does the life cycle of a Clearloop project look like? Who are the major stakeholders? And then how does it drive the net zero transition? Um, namely, speaking a little bit about per- power purchase agreements, why those don't always work for big or small companies, and then how offsets play a role in helping companies achieve net zero. Yes. So I think for us, it's this is a, a, a complementary. It should be, you know, Clearloop should be complementary to all of the other um, solutions and things that folks have been doing so far. And so how do you get, if a company, if your company is already maxed out scope two, um, or if, if um, your Companies thinking about how do I take, how do I get the dollars that I have, you know, budgeted for investing in climate and get the most carbon out of the grid? How do how do we do that um, in the most impactful way? Like we really want to be able to kind of be that solution because it's a one-time transaction. So for our first project that we did in Jackson, Tennessee, it's going to be we broke ground. Um, we sort of announced it. We had eleven different organizations. So the idea is that this should be scalable. So if you're a small uh, mom and pop shop or you're a Fortune 500 company, if you have a, a measure of carbon that you're trying to attack. Um, you should be able to bring it to Clearloop and then we can translate that into here's how many um, watts of solar that would be from the the project that we're trying to build. So for example, in Jackson, it was 1 million watts. So one megawatt, it's enough to power about 200 homes. So what we needed in that transaction is we need some, we need to cover some of the capital stack with some equity at the forefront of the transaction, because what we're doing with that is like when you're buying a house, um, you have some money down um, and then you're able to finance the rest of the house. That's essentially what we've done here with this concept is we are trying to bring that money down so that there is um, enough, we can stomach the risk of it on the back end where we're selling the powers brown power to the local power company it's of, of course it's clean electrons but they're not getting the environmental attributes so they're paying us really cheap prices for energy which is should be a win-win for all of us because the end consumer is then also getting cheap power from their provider um but i know that that is a lot um, of different pieces to 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 bring together but essentially is all these small companies they have a, a carbon footprint just like they would buy a tree offset or a cook, a cook stove offset what they're giving us is a fee to offset a metric ton of carbon that metric ton of carbon is translated into this number of watts it's a subsidy that we're bringing to the table to then finance the rest of the project that's what we've done so it's a one-time transaction they get all of the environmental attributes their name is on the solar project and it's a one-time deal because thanks to their money this idea of additionality we that project is not financeable we won't build it unless we have that capital from the companies that are helping us bring that money to the table so the project can be built um, and can go live for the next 40 years so we had this whole thing around you know making carbon a relic of the past because by investing today we're building this project today the project will be live for the next 40 years and uh, it will be pushing out clean electrons but it's that one-time transaction that really makes these projects go which is on the other side what we've done with Rivian as well so we just signed uh, we we announced that we are helping Rivian bring their first uh, one megawatt of renewable energy online the way we're doing that is also this one-time transaction they're paying up front for the environmental attributes of this project and thanks to that money we're then able to use it to finance the rest of the project. So it's really this idea, which I think uh, was the original sort of concept of this greenhouse gas accounting additionality that were it not for that 
capital, where not for those funds, we would not be able to then um, be able to build these projects. And so it's, it's really, uh, it's a different concept in renewables, because in renewables, you're, folks are used to paying year over year for things that for, for solar plant to generate renewable energy credits year over year. What we're doing is we're taking the lifetime view. You're paying us up front is a one-time transaction. And really it's about the carbon that you're helping us avoid. Um, and that's thankfully measurable um, and backed by lots of data and science of, of folks that um, have been very kind to um, partner with us and help us validate that although unique in its own way and that not necessarily verified by a gold standard or a Vera. That's right. So how important and so the companies that you're talking to, how knowledgeable are they in terms of greenhouse gas accounting and carbon markets and how much do they care if, uh, if a, an offset credit that they generate that they generate through Clearloop, one metric ton of CO2 or CO2E is verified by a specific carbon registry. Yeah, I think that right now what we're seeing in the market is that is all sort of being uh, determined and defined and redefined because I think what we've seen, unfortunately, in the legacy world is that it hasn't always proven to be as measurable and as verifiable as maybe it was sold. And so what we're trying to do is use data and be really transparent about how we are, one, estimating it, um, and then two, how we can verify it and how we have that sort of visibility in terms transparency, because I think going back to, to the earlier conversation, it really is about how do we distill this very big problem into uh, digestible pieces and be really transparent, because like, it is all about transparency. If we are saying we're going to go build this project and this project is going to do X, we need to make sure that we're building the project, but two, that it's actually doing X, right? That we are showcasing to the companies, because companies are not doing this sort of in silos. They're doing this for a reason. There's a variety of different reasons why they do it, but a lot of it is their customers want to demand it or their employees want to demand it. And so we want to make it really easy for, for those companies to be able to share that data and that information um, because the consumers demand it. We all want to see what it means to be to have offset a metric ton of carbon and what that money has led them to do. And so that tying that together, I think, has been much more impactful for the companies that are signing up with us than maybe some of the folks that have been in the legacy market that um, have also had you know challenges to, to that data transparency. And so our hope is that you know, we'll have more third-party verifiers and, and more folks, and this will become more of a norm um, that the more transparency we have with customers, the more um, we can show the data of what's actually happening, the less we will have these sort of, um, you know, scholarly debates um, and get to the to the practical meat of, of getting solutions on the ground and, you know, iterating as we learn more. You're not the only one. A lot of Stripes work, uh, who we had on the show, um, with their carbon removal, their frontier carbon removal is not certified by Vera or Gold Standard. And most recently, um, Toucan, for those who are interested, the Toucan DAO protocol, um, something in the blockchain world, had this idea where they would purchase basically bad certified offsets, or cheap certified, not necessarily bad, but cheap certified offsets by these considered by the public markets and the consensus of the leaders of verification, and yet uh, they're not driving impact. And for people who want to listen more into that, I'll say go listen to the episode with Nan. We covered emissionality, we covered PPAs a little bit, we talked about renewable energy credits. Anyone else who wants to dive in, go check out the episode with Gavin McCormick, uh, Executive Director and Founder of Wattime, who clearly works closely with 
if you were not working on clear loop, and hopefully there's a long runway where you're going to drive tons and tons of impact and remove tons of literally tons of CO2e from the world, what would you be doing with your time? That's a good question. I, um, I don't know. Um, I think that I would still be doing something meaty. I've always wanted to, I think the climate world sort of um, is, is so big and broad. I've always thought about waste as the next thing that I would want to think about. Um, you know, I, I lived in San Francisco for a little bit and I remember how easy and normal it was to sort of compost and, you know, it was everywhere. Um, but I think just from the material side of things, you know, understanding how, um, we can use other things than plastic to, to, to make products. Um, I would love to dive into that. So I think that that would be my other thing, or I, I don't know, maybe the political world would be um, calling my name again. I believe that both of those things may happen in the future. I'm excited. We'll listen to this in 20 years and see where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> when you think of sustainability superheroes or superhero, who comes to mind? Good question. I think the biggest superhero I've seen um, is Gavin McCormick from What Time. I think he is, he's so smart and passionate and kind. Um, and he has come up with something so interesting. I think when we met him three years ago, it was so funny because he was still, you know, in, in the research phase. And I think now uh, the fact that emissionality is sort of commonplace in the sustainability circles, you know, that's a very mainstream way of, of thinking and talking talking about um, energy and energy procurement um, has been thanks to him and his work and his team and the team he's built around Watt Time. I think what's what I've seen so far is that there's going to be a few other copycats that will be trying to, to use um, some of the stuff that he's done, but he's one of the kindest people I've found in, in, in this world. Um, and I, and for that, you know, he deserves a, a superhero badge because, you know, when you do that kind of research, sometimes people can be very jealous of, of safeguarding it. And he's very, um, willing to be collaborative and, and share what he knows. I've only had a few hours with him, but I totally agree. He is such a magical person. What is one book podcast or other form of learning that's shaped the way you think about sustainability and net zero and renewable energy? Um, I think I haven't had a lot of time for podcasts, unfortunately, but I do have I less about sustainability, more about entrepreneurship. I always listen to um, when I get a chance to listen to something um, is um, how I built this um, NPR's um, podcast on entrepreneurship. I always find it really fascinating to hear, you know, and to hear all the kind of early questions and doubts that entrepreneurs have. So it's it's always really um, helpful. And then I think on books, um, the the I the I, this is going to be super lame, but the latest IPCC report it is one of the most interesting and insightful things I've seen on climate because it's all about here's the solutions that we need to embrace in order to fix this. And it is very clear what we need to do. Um, you know, when folks say, well, we don't know, it's such a big problem. We don't know what to do. Like they lay it out. Um, and it's all kinds of experts from around the world saying, you know, here's what we need for solutions. The uh, one, number one, two, and three, we need to clean up the grid, uh, which is very nice for, for the folks in Clearloop who are working on very practical things and doesn't seem super sexy, but that's what we need to do. Um, and just, you know, lays out you know, where we need to be and, and how, how to do it. Um, so I think all those recipe books are always very helpful. For you personally and Clearloop more generally, what does success look like and what is the impact you hope to have both on local communities and cleaning up the grid and renewable energy? 
Yeah, I think for me, and I guess it's hard for me to distance myself from Clearloop since we built it uh, from baby um, to now toddler. Um, I think that uh, success is really being able to replicate and scale the way that we are interconnecting these projects. I think that's one of the toughest parts of, of this job. You know, I, I thought at first it was going to be demand. It was going to be, you know, companies really buying into this concept that they can help uh, build these new solar projects to uh, tackle their carbon footprint. That has proven to be, you know, it, obviously there's challenges in that, but I think the biggest challenge is always, you know, when you have these communities that are really eager, how do you work with them and their local power companies to then interconnect these projects and make the case that it's an economic way for those utilities and power companies to buy cheap power? Um, that's, you know, that's the meaty, like hard infrastructure uh, question. And so success looks like replicability and scale um, across the communities that that we've already identified. Um, that that would be fantastic. Laura, thank you so much. I've had a great time. How should people follow your work or get in touch with you? Thank you so much. This has been great. It's always uh, hard to figure out which one to tackle first, second, and third. So thank you, Nathan, for helping us tell this story. Um, and hopefully everybody got something out of it. But um, the, the best way to keep in touch with us, you know, Clearloop obviously has all the social medias. Um, we're even on TikTok, mostly because our interns are very enterprising and try to um, do that. Uh, so Clearloop US um, on most channels, but I'm also on, um, you know, folks, if they want to reach out on, on LinkedIn, I'm always, uh, you know, I try to be on there as much as possible. So um, if uh, folks want to, you know, do a chat or have an idea, I'm always game because lots of people were kind with their time. So I hope I can give that back. Thanks again to Laura for joining us today. You can connect with her on LinkedIn, Laura Zapata, L-A-U-R-A Zapata, Z-A-P-A-T-A. And if you want to follow Clearloop, they are active on all the social medias at Clearloop US. Looks like Clearloopus, um, except for Instagram, where they are just Clearloop. You can get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer, email Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Last but not least, if you made it this far, I'm hoping you'll do us a quick favor. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify. Follow us and subscribe, and check out all of our social medias at The Net Zero Life. If I asked you to do just one of those things, it would be subscribe and maybe tell a friend. Until next week, I'm Ethan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. Life.